2 Peter 3.18 says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Key verse for Him because that's what His life was about, growing in the grace and knowledge. And as you grow in that, then you have the power and the energy that He needs to be able to extend it out to others. And so he read, he studied the Greek New Testament. He needed to do it as quick as he could because once he started on his preaching tours, he wasn't going to have much time to study. He had to have it now to be able to draw from. He read not only the Greek New Testament, but the commentary that he was most after was called the Matthew Henry Commentary. That was my first commentary. There six volumes of it. And I couldn't wait to get my hands on that. I remember that. And that's... That's what he um, he got. He had quite the zeal. Um, he didn't have anything else to start with. A Greek New Testament. Um, there is a Matthew Henry commentary of the Bible. And then along came the writings of the Reformers and the Puritans. So he dug himself into that. And uh, he was getting solidified very quickly. Uh, he became ordained in the Church of England. And as he became ordained, he did his first sermon, uh, had a big congregation where that was at, a lot of people, and he was received very well that um, next thing you know, they're asking him to supply, supply the pulpit, fill in at different pulpits all over England. He got to where he was preaching nine times a week. That's a little more than once a day. And uh, they were becoming... um, more and more after him to preach at the churches. And he preached in some of the principal churches, the main churches in London, 20 years old. He's preaching there. Kind of reminds you of Spurgeon and the young Spurgeon and how he had gotten to where the buildings couldn't hold the people. It was that packed. Um, and you can see why later on he becomes an open-air preacher. Um, if you look in Romans 8.30... You will see what his doctrine was about and had gotten shaped very quickly. 8.30 says, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. He took that to heart, and with the help of other uh, people who had written books before him, such as the Reformers and the Puritans, He grabbed a hold of that theological system and that was the main frame from what he preached from. Um, Knowing that God was in control, he knew already about the grace of God. He tried everything that he could do to get to God and he couldn't. And finally, it was the grace of God that came into his heart shining. And so, anyway, we we know that the doctrines of grace are uh, very important to to him and that's that's what he... uh, what he called it, doctrines of grace. By the way, um, I'll come back to that. He wanted to come to the United States because Wesley, John Wesley, had been there from England and wanted to come to the United States. And Wesley had gone to Georgia. didn't have a good time here. Things didn't work out for him very well at all. Uh, And as he was going back, Whitfield was coming over. And it's nice to take note, Whitfield was probably 
more sold to America than he was his home country of England. He spent uh, out of, let's see, there were seven trips that he had to America. And he only lived to be 55. So that's seven trips from 20 to 35 years. And he would stay here for a year or so. So he was here quite a lot. you got to consider it's going to take almost three months to sail here and then sail back. <laughs> so he was um, definitely committed to the cause of um, Christianity coming back alive here in America. It had already grown cold like it had in England. So John Wesley ran into some guys on the ship called the Moravians. And the Moravians... Uh, were very zealous people. And so was Wesley, but he wasn't saved. He just didn't really know it. But the thing is, is that there was a frightful storm that happened, and as that storm was crashing against them, he thought for sure he was going to die. And the Moravians are calm as can be. They're not worked up, not excited, and matter of fact, they're praising God. And they testified of the assurance of God. Uh, they started teaching him about the assurance of God. He had no idea about the assurance that he could have. He found that very interesting. So they talked to him about a providential, sovereign God. They made an impact on him. When he went back into England, uh, he and Charles became born again. And uh, that's when Whitfield was in America. You can say, okay, I thought this was about Whitfield. Now we're talking about the Wesleys. Well, he and the Wesleys kind of go together although their doctrine definitely doesn't. And we'll see how that works out. But uh, anyway, they knew they had wisdom from God, and they knew that the righteousness came from Him, and sanctification came from Him, and redemption, which we read in 1 Corinthians 1.30 earlier. And it's God that does that. That's the life that came into them. So Whitfield is on American soil. Many people had gotten sick here in America, there in Georgia. And uh, he kind of got sick there too, but the thing is, uh, it left quite an impact on him. He just kept on going with it and kept, uh, kept preaching. Orphans were left. Parents had died. Whitfield desired to open an orphanage over here in America. He'd just gotten here. Next thing you do, next thing you know, he's doing an orphan house. He loved Georgia. Uh, he was not discouraged like the Wesleys were. He was burdened for these orphans, so he went around taking up uh, offerings to get this orphanage started. He'd open up schools in Highgate and Hampstead and a school for girls in Savannah, Georgia, uh, just in a, in a short time. And all the same time, he's preaching up and down the coast all over uh, America um, about his preaching, open-air preaching. That's really what uh, he did and is known most for. If you look in Luke 14.23... I think it's a pretty good theme for Whitfield. Luke 14.23. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Then the Master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Well, that's what he felt like he was supposed to do. So he went out everywhere. Any place that he could preach, he was doing it. And uh, he goes back to London now. He's been over in America, goes back. 
He thought the doors would be opened even bigger than ever before. It already had the thousands of people coming to uh, see him preach. He thought he'd be warmly received, and it was the opposite. The Church of England had become colder and now was making it harder on the ones who wanted to go out and preach the Word, the true Word of God. And uh, so the Methodist societies, like the Holy Club that he had been part of, they weren't um, sprouting off like they were. They were becoming um, kind of uh, shut down. And so he's being opposed by the establishment of the church, and that's kind of the way that it usually goes. Jesus warned the uh, the apostles about that, that uh, you would have people even in, in their own religion uh, persecuting them. So he preached to whoever, whoever he could and would receive him, and he would... Um, It'd be smaller crowds, but it started growing. And he ran into um, not only the Moravians, but a guy by the name of Hal Harris. As the crowds become bigger and bigger again, Hal Harris is from the Wales, from Wales. He had been doing open-air preaching. This is an unheard-of thing. And if you're a Church of England, you stay inside and you have church in the church house. And he's doing something quite uh, quite different. He was considered an outcast himself. And so he held a conference uh, with the Wesleys, Whitfield did, and said, hey, we need to, we need to get this thing moved out and, and reach, reach the masses. And John Wesley would uh, later be forced to follow Whitfield's example. It was Whitfield's idea as, as he passed it on to him. Um, anyway, fanaticism took root. <laughs> Because he was a fanatic. Have you ever been called a religious fanatic? And if you haven't, if you study the Bible and read it and go to Bible studies, you'll probably be called a fanatic. Anybody been called a fanatic? Or think you've been called a fanatic? (laughs) Anyway, there was no school, no church where he went. He went to the coal mines where people would work almost day and night in this coal district. They never saw outsiders. They didn't care about them. Nobody would go there. They were very hostile. Matter of fact, you walk in there, you may not walk back out. That might be the end of you. But he went on in. He made inroads. He knew how to talk with people and build up a trust. And he started preaching to hundreds of them. And they didn't know anything about anything. They just worked in the cold. And uh, then Bristol... Uh, England became uh, quite the place, and so the clergyman considered him to be fanatical. He held uh, 30 meetings a week, and the crowds became quite immense. Some were 5,000, and some were 6,000, some 8,000, 10,000, 20,000, up to 30,000 people were starting to come out into the fields. Uh, the, that's, that's where he would usually go. And a lot of times they would stand in the rain and in the cold listening to him, thousands of people shivering, hearing the Word of God. And then he went to London, just outside of London, a place called the Moorfields. M-O-O-R Fields. He didn't have any designated time. He would just go out there and start preaching and people would start surrounding him. Next thing you know, there would be thousands. He would start at 6 a.m. Sometimes uh, he would uh, be doing it at 8 p.m. be different times. Uh, not all the people there were fans. The people that were there didn't all like him, and they would throw stones at him. They'd throw dirt. They'd throw eggs and pieces of dead cats 
were thrown at him for preaching the Word of God. And he says, I was honored with having those thrown at me. In the morning, some 20,000 would listen to him. Do you hear what I'm saying? Yeah, 20,000. In the evening, some 35,000 would gather. We're getting into some unbelievable numbers here. And he is doing this without a microphone. Whitfield was only 25 years old. Crowds up to 80,000 have been reported. I don't know how accurate that is, but in some biographies they will have that. If it's just 30,000. Wow. 80,000, that's like Bush Stadium being filled up twice. Or going out to the Rose Bowl or something. Um, Just incredible. So uh, he introduced this uh, preaching to innumerable multitudes. His oratory was just incredible. And the way that he would do it, he he would put so much life into it, people thought that they were seeing these things. It was almost like it was real. While he was describing an old man trembling toward the edge of a precipice, there was this Lord Chesterfield of England, jumped to his feet and shouted as George walked and the man unknowingly toward the edge, He's gone! (laughs) He says he cried out, there was another time when he was in Boston. He was, uh, he was describing a storm at sea. And there were many sailors that happened to be in the crowd. And at the very height of the tempest, Whitfield had painted an old salt, old salt, I call this sailor. He jumped to his feet and he shouted, To the lifeboats, men! To the lifeboats! <laughs> it becomes so real. And that's what he did. His demonstrations and his preaching was because he saw the Bible as real. He was called by many an actor by the way that he enunciated, by the way that he brought forth, and he would be very demonstrative. Sometimes he would weep and he'd have to stop. And then he would might even stomp his feet. But he made it come alive. And uh, when he was in uh, London, the uh, Bishop of London denounced him and all the more, he just kept going to the uh, uh, preaching in the open air. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, he said, uh, after talking about him so much here, he wasn't there to have the attention brought to him. Matter of fact, he said this, Let my name be forgotten. Let me be trodden under the feet of all men, if Jesus may thereby be glorified. He took a message out of 2 Corinthians 10.5 and kind of worked that. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. He just let it all go and he said, I don't care about George Whitfield. I want the name of Christ to be glorified. And as this one says here in our verse uh, 5, anything that's high and exalted, let it be brought down and be brought into the captivity of Christ, obedience to Him. And so that's the way, way that he lived. What kind of preaching did he do? It's called open-air preaching. But I mean like you say you're expository. Yeah, okay, let's get into that right now. Okay, you ready? Perfect timing. Couldn't be better. And he did preach doctrinally. Very much so. You think, well, 
this man must have had some kind of must have been a storyteller or something to attract that many people. There's no way that you can preach the Bible and that many people come, right? I mean, it seems impossible today. But um, in his vocabulary, he said there's no such word as vacations. Matter of fact, there's no day off. He didn't see that. Um, when he went to the, he, he actually crossed the Atlantic 13 times. He came to America seven times, but every time he came to America, he had to go back. So there's two times every time he came here. It's 13 times. Oh, what happened to the 14th? Well, he died in America. So um, he didn't get to make it back home, but that was okay um, because, as far as he's concerned, it didn't matter where he's at. He felt at home when he preached the word. And when you'd be on the ship, you know what he'd do? You'd think, oh, rest and relaxation for a while. Maybe he can study. No. He preached on the ship. He did some study in there. But most of the time he ship, uh, in the ship, he'd be preaching to these sailors who were lost. And so that's what he would do. <laughs> lost at sea. You can't walk out. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Very good. So you always preach, preach in an airplane. <laughs> He um, he went to Philadelphia for for one place. Um, that's the second time he went, uh, I think, to America. Um, he preached on this place called Society Hill. Preached to six thousand one morning, then the evening about eight thousand. On Thursday he spoke uh, to about ten thousand. And one of those events, somebody reported this, and I don't know how much of a stretch it is, but they said he opened his mouth and taught them saying, and those words were distinctly heard at Gloucester Point there in Philadelphia a distance of two miles by water down the Delaware River his voice was heard two miles I don't know about that that's reported that way I find that rather remarkable and a little bit unbelievable but I will say that Benjamin Franklin who was a very much a friend of George Whitfield, being the scientist that he was started where he was at and of course there's a big crowd this wasn't easy to do but as he worked himself through the crowd he wanted to know how far it is that he could go to hear him and he kept going and going and going to finally went to this one street that had this alley and now all of a sudden he couldn't hear his voice at all then he looked at it and he couldn't he didn't count the people there but he was saying okay two feet give everyone two feet started multiplying it out adding it up oh there's a, well, there's 30,000 people here. And just, just at that uh, uh, event there. But he heard him some mile, mile and a half away preaching the Word of God. That's unbelievable. I, I don't know. Water, why do voices carry over water? That, that can help. Well, yeah, you get the right yeah. places where yeah. he's at. He looked for balconies plus if he wind. was at a building. And, plus the wind. Yeah. yeah. If, if that can carry, right? I've known PAs that can really take it a long way with the wind, but I've seen some PAs that can't get past about two or 300 yards. <laughs> anyway, um, quite Herculean, <laughs> this man was. Many times, every week, for 30-some-odd years of preaching, lifting that voice up every day, two, three times a day, four times maybe sometimes, with that many thousands of people. That's unheard of. Nobody's ever done anything like that. 
not anywhere close. You don't see it in any kind of history, writings of any secular history. Uh, whenever he got back to England, he went up and down England's coast, regularly traveled to these same places, went to Wales, went to Scotland, uh, been to America, even stopped at Bermuda because they said he was sick and he needed a rest, and that way nobody will know who you are and you can get uh, you can get rested. And he continued to preach there. He didn't rest there while he was sick. And uh, he would preach every major town on the eastern seaboard. It was a phenomenon. Nobody has done anything like this. Um, he was known as the Apostle of the English Empire. You ever heard of Tipoli? Augustus Tipoli, who's written hymns? Anyway, that's what he called him. He's called America's first celebrity. Religious celebrity. Matter of fact, when he was in America, 80% of the American population in the colonies had seen him and heard him. 80%. So he was actually the first cultural hero in America. William, William um, Cooper, uh, who's written hymns, he said he's the wonder of the age. He was 29 years old at the time. J.C. Ryle says he was the instrument of God in the salvations of thousands. What about it? What about this? Well, he was the one who really is responsible for the great awakening in America. Uh, the main instrument that God used. Um, Benjamin Franklin said about his preaching. Now get into a little bit of his style. Now this is Benjamin Franklin. Didn't become a Christian. He heard some of the best preaching that he ever could have heard. He had him stay. He had Whitfield stay at his house. They were good friends. Here's what he said. Every accent... Every emphasis, every modulation of voice was so perfectly well-turned and well-placed that without being interested in the subject, one could not help being pleased with the discourse. A pleasure of much the same kind with that received from an excellent piece of music. It was music to Benjamin Franklin's ears even though he did not uh, trust in the gospel. He was an actor-preacher, full of action. Uh, he had a traveling pulpit, uh, really, I guess you could say his traveling pulpit was a tiny stage, <laughs> really what it was being that, but he would weep and stamp loudly. And people would say, well, why do you preach the way that you do? He would take a text and preach and preach. He says, I believe what I read. I believe the Bible is real. And it just let it take over from there. He out-acted the actors. That he wasn't acting. It was real. The truths of the gospel were real. real. And uh, so that's what it was. It was about the reality. Um, it's been said, now this was not the mighty microscope using all its powers to make the small look impressively big. Right? This was the desperately inadequate telescope bending every power to give some small sense of the majesty of what too many preachers saw as tiresome and unreal. It was like whatever little bit that he had is like a, a little inadequate telescope, but he used every power that it could be to get the smallest sense of the majesty of God. And that is what a preacher is to do, to get out as much as you can of how majestic God is. See, it's about God. And that's what his messages were about. Uh, he, preached, uh, he preached the gospel with power. 
Now, what did he preach? Well, in his messages were the doctrines of grace. What did he really see as real when, when he preached? What, what was so real there? Well, he was, he was doctrinally specific. He was never vague. It was always clear. It was sharp. Uh, when you read his sermons, you'll see how amazing his doctrine is. Solid as can be. Yes? Can you give a small definition of what you mean when you say doctrinal? Doctrinal is um, correct it's teaching mean it really means teaching doctrine is like you can take the doctrine of God uh, the teaching of God the teaching of, about Christ the teaching of sinful man um, the teaching of grace you know, all, all those are doctrines and so he would take those doctrines out of the scripture that he would have and then put them into a language and a picture that people could actually understand. His theology was incredibly high, but he would speak to the poor, the sick, the destitute, and the aristocrats, and they would all get this depth in an amazing way that was so picturesque to them. And that's why he was so good. He could take doctrine, doctrinal stuff, which is hard theology, and yet put it into a layman's terms. Um, he was he was classically evangelical Calvinistic. What we believe, that's what he believed, or what he believed is what we believe, <laughs> um, from from the first to the last. God chose him for salvation. That would be in his messages. He would never forget that. And it was never the reverse. J.I. Packer said that he embraced the Calvinistic scheme. He had told Wesley one time, I never read from John Calvin. I'm Calvinistic because that's what the Bible teaches. And I'm sure many of us have said that. If you'd rather not use the word Calvinistic because it's a man and it'll stumble up people, I don't mind using the term. I'll use it with people who understand. But people who don't, I'd rather not use it because they're going to they get all these different ideas of who Calvin is and they have no idea who he really is. And you can put Calvin right to right with Whitfield as far as one of the greatest preachers that who ever lived. Also, expository. Um, he says Jesus taught me. Jesus taught this, this Word of God. I never read anything that Calvin wrote, he said. But um, he had the doctrines of the Reformation, the teaching of that. He said, I did the most to debase man and exalt the Lord Jesus. That's preaching. That's what you want to do. You want to get a high view of God and you want to bring man down as low as he can because man already has this up here. And when he starts getting it back down, guess what? Next week he's back up here again and the preacher's got to bring him down and bring Christ up. Right? John the Baptist said what? He must become more, I must become less. Yes. NIV. He increases, I decrease. That is the idea. And that's what Whitfield tried to do. Uh, he said, all others leave free will in man and make him, in part at least, a savior to himself. It's one of the things he was saying about free will. And not only did that diminish the work of the Savior, it made our position in Christ insecure. So he says, the more that we see that it's God's will and not our will, then it glorifies God. So he wrote to John Wesley. 
He said this, the doctrine of election and the final perseverance of those that are truly in Christ. Final, final perseverance is a doctrine of what? Assurance of salvation. We are eternally secure. Because of, if, if God elects us, then He will make sure that we are saved through eternity. And He said to him, I am 10,000 times more convinced of, if possible, than when I last saw you about the doctrines of grace. That's usually how he termed it, the doctrines of grace. He loved the assurance. He preached assurance constantly about the mighty hands of God. He said, Surely I am safe because put into His almighty arms. Though I may fall, yet I shall not utterly be cast away. The Spirit of the Lord Jesus will hold and uphold me. Is that good doctrine? That's biblical, isn't it? He had preached that I cannot see how true humbleness of mind can be attained without a knowledge of the doctrine of election. If you have the Arminianism, it makes you think that you've done a little bit. And he says, though I will not say that everyone who denies election is a bad man, yet I will say with that sweet singer, Mr. Trail, it's a very bad sign. Such a one, whoever be, I think cannot truly know himself. For if we deny election, we must, partly at least, glory in ourselves. If we deny election, we are glorying and... Yeah, but I said yes. You just gloried in yourself, right? uh, This was uh, Whitfield. He says, Our redemption is so ordered that no flesh should glory in the divine presence, and hence it is that the pride of man opposes this doctrine, because according to this doctrine and no other, he that glories must glory only in the Lord. That was a part of his message. He would say, election is a mystery. What shall I say? Election is a mystery that shines with such resplendent brightness. Boy, that's pretty, isn't it? That to make use of the words of one who has drunk deeply of electing love, I think you guys have experienced this, it dazzles the weak eyes, even of some of God's children. However, though they know it not, all the blessing they receive, all the privileges they do or will enjoy through Jesus Christ flow from the everlasting uh, love of God the Father. So he got back to Wesley and reminded him in a letter, though I hold particular election, particular election, this is about the atonement, limited atonement, yet I offer Jesus freely to every individual soul. Amen? Because we don't know who's going to be saved. Whitfield does not hide his understanding of definite atonement or irresistible grace. He preached a sermon out of John 10, 27 and 28. And I think some of you might have this as maybe one of your favorite verses in the Bible. My sheep, this is Jesus, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of My hand. He's the great shepherd, and that's what that sermon was called, the great shepherd. And here he spoke on the particular redemption. He died for the ones that were his sheep. My sheep hear me, and they will follow me. That's irresistible grace that is there. I give them eternal life. He speaks clearly of this particular sense. Christ died for his own. That's some of the, the preaching that he has. I know my sheep. I know them. What does that mean? 
as he would ask. Why, he knows their number. He knows their names. Isn't that great to know? He knows my name. He knows everyone for whom He died. Every one of His sheep. And if there be one missing for whom Christ died, God the Father would send Him down again from heaven to fetch Him. <laughs> Go to Jeremiah 23.6. Here's another one of His fantastic sermons. And this is about justification. Remember, in the heart of the Reformation is justification by faith. That's what the Reformers spoke on so much. And it's what we should be proclaiming today. In His days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is His name by which He will be called. What is it? The Lord our righteousness. Say that again. The Lord our righteousness. Our righteousness. He is my righteousness. He is my righteousness. When Luther realized that, he said, ah, what a relief. There's nothing I can do. And he went for years looking to please God and he knew he couldn't do it. And then he found out that the Lord is His righteousness. That's how we're justified. That is Yahweh Tzidkenu or Jehovah Tzidkenu. The Lord, our righteousness. He never elevated justification to the exclusion of regeneration and sanctification. So, he had a balance there. Anyway, some of those uh, doctrines we see that uh, that he preached and uh, it was reality. Well, don't have a whole lot more time. When he went back to England again, he had uh, a meeting with the Wesleys. And their differences were incredible because we've looked at his Calvinism and Wesley was as Arminian as you could get, even though a lot of times Whitfield would hear him talk and say, that's as Calvinistic as it can be. He loved John Wesley. He is reported by maybe some on the other side that it was all Whitfield's fault. It really wasn't. He tried to maintain um, the kind of camaraderie that they always had. He tried to. He said, even even if we have different doctrinal differences, we can still keep doing what we're doing. Let's just respect each other and be careful how we present this. And he. I've never seen such a gracious man outside of Christ and maybe Apostle Paul after so many times what Wesley did to Whitfield. And I'll tell you what it was. First of all, Wesley had an incorrect understanding of what Calvinism was and he was superior in a lot of ways. That's why he did some of the things that he did. He had a mighty ambition and people report that Wesley probably had a tendency of a little bit of pride. Um, but Whitfield said, let's don't have any disputes. We can still do this together. He, he would leave England and say, okay, all of these places where I've been preaching, I want you to go in and preach. What? After knowing that theology? I don't think I could do that. But Whitfield said, 
go in, but just don't go into any disputes. As soon as Whitfield left, got on the boat, went to America, guess what Wesley did? He had a sermon called Free Grace. Sounds good, right? It redefines predestination. We see predestination in the Bible. We see it what it means in the Greek. We see it in Romans 8, for instance, and other places. He called predestination full of blasphemy. It's from the devil. And that's what he told all the people as he preached this sermon and wrote on it, had it published, got it around to all the people that Whitfield had been preaching to. And um, he, he was really preaching against George Whitfield and really God's Word. Uh, the, and he also preached a divisive doctrine called Christian perfectionism, which I don't know if I don't think he really ever believed he had finally reached sinless perfection. But you can lose salvation, though. You can be perfect for a while, but you can lose it. You can sin again and then lose salvation. Wesley taught that you did not have eternal security. He was Arminian all the way. Wesley had his own branch of Methodism. And did you know that George Whitfield was Methodist? Even though he was in the Church of England. They didn't start a denomination. It became later. But he was from the Calvinistic Methodism. I didn't know there was such a thing until I found out about, I believe, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was Calvinistic Methodist. And I couldn't understand. That sounds like two opposites, doesn't it? But uh, what we see, what he, he taught... Methodism at first really was methodical, and that's a good word, you know. And teaching and preaching and praying, and you know, it can it can turn cold, you know, the way that uh, what happened in the Church of England. But uh, Whitfield was convicted by election and free justification. He said, "Man is nothing. He has a free will to go to hell, but none to go to heaven, till God works in him." Pretty easy theology, isn't it? His theology was formed within four years after his conversion. It always was kind of there, but it formed up, and then he had it solid, and that's what he would use as his basis. Uh, He understood more and more as time went on about the nature of man and his sin. And that's what he preached thoroughly. He would show that man was dreadfully sinful, and was on his way to hell. And it reminds you of Jonathan Edwards whenever he wrote that great sermon and preached it, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. By the way, speaking of Edwards, Whitfield and Edwards go together too. Uh, Edwards didn't get to see him very long, but he invited him up to his church in Northampton, and he preached there for a few days and kept on going uh, north as he went into uh, more of New England. Um, that's all about this great awakening. And as as he went through these uh, these states, he was yeah he was a very good friend of of Whitfield and or of Wes, um, Wesley Whitfield and Edwards. <laughs> Edwards is one of my favorites. Great theologian. But uh, Edwards would read his sermons. He was he was different in the way that he presented it. it wouldn't be demonstrative at all, and people would still be falling in the floor confessing their sins and repenting, uh, being sad of what they had done. And he read his sermons in a monotone. 
whereas you would have Whitfield the exact opposite, although they'd be preaching almost exactly the same thing. The sinfulness of man and the majesty and supremacy of God. And so uh, he's the one, as he left from the south, as he had arrived, he sailed up to New England in 1740. Uh, that was the uh, first of three t- trips up to that area. And that was the first of the Great Awakening. So Whitfield. I always wondered, how did that really start? Was it all by, you know, just a little bit at a time? Next thing you know, it just, just went full force. Well, Edwards had been sowing seed throughout that whole area. And Whitfield's presence, though, came in, and that was the straw that broke the back. And you have the worst of people, the worst of mankind, and whole towns just basically shutting down hearing these messages and people weeping and recognizing their terrible sin. 8,000, 15,000, 20,000, 30,000, 35,000 people were coming every day, every night. And so he did that, um, and then he, uh, he returned to England. That wasn't a, but just a short time that he was there, but it, the, the flame was started. He got back home, and it was his darkest hour. He found that Wesley was totally divergent, hated the Calvinistic doctrine. He withdrew from the Wesley connection. Uh, somebody built him a church at uh, Moorfields. And he tried to keep getting back with Wesley and even offered him to preach in places again, even knowingly, knowing what had happened before. And he kept forgiving him, knowing that Wesley had a different doctrine and a different agenda, even though a lot of the times he did help in this revival too, though, as if he would have stuck with the fact that man is depraved and he needs the grace of God to free him. Yes? So, if we were to become factions here just for the sake of this conversation, there could be a class on the other side of town teaching a historical lesson about Wesley saying things about Whitfield. Right? Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, but there are people that have, you know, the there are people that have the same high regard for Wesley as they do right. for, and, and that would be more of an Arminian camp, if you will, rather yep. than a, a reformed. Camp. A lot of the reformers uh, that you'll you'll read, they'll actually uh, quote from Wesley at times. They recognize what he did. We don't want to take the fact that he was involved in this too. Uh, I just detest uh, the Arminianism that came out as he preached against Whitfield. But Whitfield never took it personally. Well, and 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 I think if I mean I'm not going to put any words in his mouth, but, but but sometimes that's good to hear the other side of the arguments and and take those arguments and, and put them to scripture. It's a healthy thing sometimes, not necessarily to hear false teaching, but to but to hear other teaching that you may not necessarily agree with, because then it it, it prompts you to search deeply in the word. You're going to go further into this. Did I get ahead of you? I didn't mean to get no, ahead of you. I'm no, just, I'm just saying that you know because really, I mean, if if Wesley was, and I'm I'm not huge on history, that's why I for sure wanted to be here. Um, I mean, all of these little Methodist churches all over the United States that are in all these really little communities. 
was that because of what Wesley had done? Well, because you can find Jesus, or Jesus can find you, even in, in those a, right. in those churches. And that's what he that's what God does, and that's why. And Whitfield well knew that, you know, and and he knew that he was a powerful preacher. Wesley was. God had gifted him. Uh, he just had a terrible misunderstanding of what Calvinism was, and he hated it. And he called it doctrines of demons. He just said God gifted him. So, to, so was he saved? To preach the Word of God. I, I have no doubt that Wesley was saved. Yeah. He was a man of God, but I really have differences with that theology because it's, it's very man-centered. And matter of fact, what does it do to the character of God as far as, let's say, eternal security? Um, it says that I have to keep my salvation. God keeps me, but I'm going to have to keep me too. And now we've got a, I think, as a diff- that's a different different theology that you can lose salvation. Did Whitfield say why he? I mean, okay, yeah, that's great. He he forgave him, whatever. He, but did he ever kind of say why he would let him or ask him to come and, and preach when he knew what he was preaching was? Um, well, he would tell him lay aside the differences and preach what we know to be the saving gospel, which you you can. Even Arminians can do that. They can't get into the depth that we have. Actually, when we present the gospel, it should really be the same. We don't have to preach Calvinism. That's later as people want to know. We have to preach to them, though, that they are depraved. And and uh, Wesley did believe that. Um, and they are in the need of a Savior. Stick to the things that they kind of both agree on. Yeah, that they agree on. And he was powerful with that. And he respected... Uh, him uh, now the other Wesley which is the brother who wrote all those great hymns was with John almost all the way with it but as time went on he started kind of going over a little more towards the center and he saw some things where Whitfield was biblically correct on and he was ready to go all the way over You know, I don't understand Whitfield on this one but I, you have to see the grace in it, and this is this is beyond me. But he said, "I don't want for you and your brother, who are so tight, to be causing an issue again." And I'm coming in trying to steal him away from the ministry that's happening there, because he knew they were great leaders in in England, and, mo- and a lot of the time he was spending over here in America, as well as he was in England. Uh, he just knew that God could still use him. Uh, I find that very interesting. As much as he was being preached against, he never really preached against him. He did challenge him, and he would write letters to him, but at the same time, he never said anything wrong that I ever came across with. Now, there might be a a different story on the other side, but from the biographers that I read, uh, anyway, he even gave up the Methodism so Wesley could have it. He's the one that really was a moderator and had something formed, what was called Methodism, before Wesley had a, um, um, how do you say it, um, association, maybe, something of that nature, a, a true official association, not a denomination yet, but at least something with that. He was like six months ahead of him in that when they named that. But he wound up giving it up knowing that they couldn't get their doctrine together. No matter how much he tried with Wesley, Wesley was not going to give in at all. Uh, Whitfield almost became a martyr. Uh, he was attacked by a man with abusive language. Um, he called him a dog, called him a villain, all the different things that went along with that. And he had this gold-headed cane and he just 
tried to beat him to a pulp. Just kept beating him and beating him viciously and left him unconscious to die. And uh, he came out of that. He was also said to be misappropriating funds. You know how people can get that going, which he didn't at all. Matter of fact, when he died, he had no money left. He gave it all away. Gave it to orphans. Never really he wasn't into that. He gave it all away. My, we're getting some of that preaching today from who? Sounds kind of radical. David Platt. I mean, this is this is real stuff. I'm not telling everybody, hey, give everything away, but wow. Maybe we should. <laughs> Amazing. No, we're supposed to sell everything, get cash for it, and then get away, <laughs> and let God take care of it. There's a difference. <laughs> I mean, this stuff yeah. I have that nobody would want, so I'd have to sell it. Have to sell it. Whatever you get out of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, he would have the mobs, and it didn't always go sweet sailing for him, but he would continue to come back to America, go back over to England. Um, uh, he, Like I said, he, he did backed away from being the leader of Methodism, and he, he let um, Wesley have that then. And that's uh, later as a result, you have the United Methodist Church. But there are still people who are Whitfieldian Methodist or Calvinist Methodist. And I find that very fascinating. But when you generally generally hear the word Methodist, are they um, normally preaching Arminian? Most most Methodists today, your United Methodist, Wesleyan Methodist, or any branch thereof, uh, the Nazarenes would be Wesleyan. Um, oh, there are, there are many uh, a lot of the Holiness churches, those movements that we can get sanctified, perfect sanctification. Uh, they got that doctrine from him, but I don't think he ever said that he was that way. He was trying to get there, but he, he couldn't. It was extreme um, discipline, trying to be perfect before God in your Christian life, knowing that you had the Holy Spirit and you could be that way. Um, anyway. How does that differ from being righteous as I am righteous? Be perfect as I am perfect. Yeah. Well, we know that we are perfect only in Christ, and that's how God sees us. But as we walk in this life and in this flesh, First John, of course, says that we still sin. Romans seven, Paul had a battle against sin. You'll see it all over the place. We're spo- and we're commanded to stop the sin. We're commanded to re- repent and confess it when we do sin. It's a broken pattern. It's a broken now. We, the power isn't over us, you know. And so, as far as doctrinally, it's been taken away. Positionally, we're in the flesh. We still battle against sin. We still sin. We can't get there until we get our perfect bodies, perfect redemption, and we're glorified. And guess what? We'll never sin again. Never have the temptation to sin again. Isn't that incredible? That's what we look to. Now, to close this off, Whitfield died. He died before Wesley. Whitfield was 55 years old. And he preached even the night before he died. And I'm sure that is exactly what he wanted to do. Uh, matter of fact, at 2 a.m., he said uh, his traveling companion says, My asthma is returning. I must have two or three days rest. Well, you know something's wrong <laughs> when he has to do that. By 6 o'clock in the morning, he had, uh, he had died. He was buried beneath the pulpit in this church in Newburyport.
in uh, First Presbyterian Church, uh, even though he wasn't Presbyterian, but he uh, he died here in America. John Wesley, who uh, they had all sorts of different memorial services going on and everything at at this uh, funeral memorial. John Wesley said this. Oh, what has the church suffered in the setting of that bright star which shone so gloriously in our hemisphere? We have none left to succeed Him, none of His gifts, none anything like Him in usefulness. He preached Whitfield's funeral because Whitfield asked him. He remained friends with him even though... Wesley really had difficulties with him. One last thing. Whitfield said this, I know of no other reason why Jesus has put me into the ministry than because I am the chief of sinners. No, I thought Paul was. (laughs) And therefore, the fittest to preach free grace to a world lying in the lap of the wicked one. I'm the chief of sinners. This man displayed grace like I have never heard of before. You look at a lot of reformers and you look at Luther and a lot of other ones and you don't always see a matter of grace with them. Sometimes they can be pretty rude. Some of our great heroes and the way that they had to fight for the truth. But Whitfield was so gracious, I think he put the person of Christ on display in all of England and Wales and Scotland and Ireland and America, everywhere he went, and people saw that. And either they fell in love with him or they threw pieces of cat at him. Do you just like keep those with you? <laughs> Thank you guys for... Um, allowing me to do that. I know it's a long time to sit and listen to that without any kind of pictures <laughs> and without the kind of preaching that uh, Mr. Whitfield did. But thank you for bearing with that. I hope it's something that you can take in your own life, though, and pack in there and say, you know, I want to take one little piece of that and make a little bit of Whitfield that's really Christ in him. I want to take a little bit and put that into my life, too. If, if we have, we, we've been fruitful for this day. We've been useful. We have one more of these, if that's okay with you guys. Another biography next week. We'll try to get one that can top Whitfield. I don't know. I don't know if it can be done.